0: I to welcome everybody here in the room, everybody watching online as well. Yeah, how about a round of applause for everybody watching online? Uh, we don't always video record the 11 o'clock service, but we had some technical difficulties during 930. So, All right, so the story is told of a minister who dies, and he's waiting in line at the pearly gates. Well, directly ahead of him is this guy wearing sunglasses, a loud shirt, a leather jacket, and jeans. And St. Peter says to the guy ahead of this ministry, he says, hey, tell me your name so that I can give you your reward. He said, well, I'm Joe Cohen, taxi driver, New York City. And and Peter, he looks down. He's like, okay, let me see here. And he smiles and goes, oh, hey, Joe. Here is a silken robe and golden staff. Now go enjoy heaven. And he goes about his merry way. And the next one in line, of course, is the minister and the minister, he doesn't waste any time. He stands up straight and in a booming voice. He says, Hi, I'm Robert Snow, pastor of Christ Congregation Church for the last 43 years. And so Peter, he, he looks down, he's flipping through. He goes, oh, okay, hey, Robert, um, here's a cotton robe and a wooden staff. Now go enjoy heaven. And the minister's like, whoa, 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 wait wait a second here. I mean, like that taxi driver, he just got this silken and robe, and this golden staff, and and, and I get this, well, what, what gives? I mean, how can that be? And Peter says, well, you see, up here, we reward strictly on a bottom-line results basis, and while you preached, people slept. <laughs> but while he drove, people prayed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... So we're in this series about God's grace because we are a grace-oriented church. And our key statement for the entire series is this, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what we believe here. That's the message of what's known as free grace theology. And plenty of churches will give lip service to this particular creed, but sadly, very few really and truly mean it. Like they may say, well, yeah, salvation is by faith alone, but then they redefine that word faith to include some kind of works, something that you got to do to earn it, something you got to do to keep it. And so in this series, I'm explaining why this theology is so crucial and how it affects every aspect of the Christian life, not just how you enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but how you grow in spiritual maturity. Now, so far in this series, we've learned some really, really good news. God offers salvation to all mankind, and whoever believes in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life becomes God's child, and their future in heaven is secure forever and ever. You can't ever lose that. Like, not by doing bad stuff, not by doubting, not by becoming an atheist, not by killing somebody. Like, nothing you can do can change the fact that God has given you this free gift of eternal life. And if you want the biblical grounds for that, I would encourage you to listen to the prior messages in this series. Go online, check those out. And we also have a listing on our website of 150 passages in the New Testament alone that make this crystal clear that once you put your faith in Jesus, you're forgiven, you're God's child, and heaven is secure. That's some good news. Now, the bad news, if you want to call it that, is just because that's true doesn't mean you can go out and get away with stuff. We talked about this last week with the whole law of sowing and reaping, that people always reap what they sow. And that means if you sow good stuff here on earth, you're going to reap good stuff. God's going to reward you maybe here in this life, uh, maybe in the next life. But if you just say, I'm just going to keep on sinning, I'm going to sow bad stuff, you're going to reap bad stuff. Maybe in this life, maybe in the next life, okay? It's a very simple concept. And the reason this principle is true is because God is fair. God is a just God. You know, even in the case of our salvation, God is fair. Our sin, the Bible says, demanded a penalty be paid. And God didn't just overlook that, He didn't just set that aside. No, Jesus, God's Son, paid that penalty for us. And so the only exception, if you will, from our perspective to this law of sowing and reaping is that Jesus paid the price for our salvation. That we sowed sin that was supposed to land us in hell, but Jesus paid the price for that particular sin, for that particular destination, if you will, that we didn't have to be separated from a perfect and holy God forever and ever. But even then, this whole law of God being just, this whole law of sowing and reaping was true. Jesus just reaped what we sowed. Now, all of this, it brings us to a key question you may have wondered this yourself, how come we don't see all the consequences of our sowing right away? Like, why is this law of sowing and reaping not automatic? Like, I don't know, the law of gravity, right? If I decide I'm going to jump off a building, I'm going to learn pretty quickly what the consequences of that. I'm going to reap those consequences pretty quickly, right? Splat, game over. But the people, they do all kinds of terrible things. I mean, Christians and non-Christians, and oftentimes seem to get away with it. Like there are murderers, there are rapists, there are thieves, and and oftentimes they don't even get caught. Now, how is that fair? And sometimes I think that's the reason people question if this whole law of sowing and reaping is even real. Well, there are a lot of answers to this, but let me start with this one. God is a loving God. The Bible says that God is patient and slow to anger. God is slow to anger. And if you think about it, if God took us out the minute we did something wrong, you guys would all be out of here before this message is over probably, right? I'd be preaching to an empty room. That would be really sad. Are you calling me a sinner? Okay. Yeah. All right. I'd be with you. All right. I get it. Like if God just said, okay, sin equals death, but, you know, you're out of here. But a second reason we don't see this law of sowing and reaping, the consequences right away is because a lot of the judgment is reserved for the next life. And that's true for believers and unbelievers. Romans 2.6 says this, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Each person. So first of all, when it comes to unbelievers, a lot of the sowing and reaping judgment, that is reserved for a day known as the day of the great white throne judgment. And we're going to talk more about judgment next week and this particular judgment next week. But let me just read you the description of this. This is Revelation 20, 11 to 13. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life." Well, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. So one day there's going to be this great judgment. Now for unbelievers, that's called the great white throne judgment. For believers, there's a Bema Seat judgment. We're going to talk more about that next week. But you just need to know that God has future judgment coming. And the Bible says that God is very, very patient with both believers and unbelievers. Look at 2 Peter 2.9. It says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. See, God holds off a lot of punishment on unbelievers until that great white throne judgment. Why? Well, God loves them, and God wants to give them every opportunity possible to come to know Him. So He is being extra, extra patient. Second Peter 3.9 says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. Are you talking about His promise to come back? He's not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He doesn't want a single unbeliever to miss a chance to put their faith in him, to come to know him. So not only is he holding off coming back until every last one gets a chance, he's also not just going to take them out the minute they do something wrong. Okay, but what about believers? Well, I think God operates in a similar way with us. He's patient. He's waiting for us to repent. And I also think a lot of the wrong that we do here on earth actually ends up coming back on us with trouble here on earth. And we talked about this last week that whole law of sowing and reaping. Now, I believe that that's very very true. You know, most sin has its own built-in consequences. If I decide to go out and break the law of the land, chances are I'm going to get caught and I'm going to pay a penalty or maybe I'm going to do time in jail. If we decide we're going to go out and be jerks to other people, well that's going to result ultimately in a loss of relational connection and maybe even loneliness and isolation for you as an individual, because that's the way you're treating other people, and it's going to come back on you. If you decide, you know what, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go cheat on my spouse. Hey, you may end up with an STD, or you might get caught and then end up in counseling with your spouse, or end up in divorce court, or maybe, and I know this happens to some people, you end up with children and grandchildren who then want nothing to do with you. I mean, a lot of sowing and reaping just happens naturally. I think it's kind of built into the system. It's all part of that law of sowing and reaping we talked about last Sunday. Now, what about the extreme cases, okay? Occasionally, someone will come up to me and paint a picture like this. They'll say, Brian, here's where I struggle with, with free grace. Like, that a person can just go out and put their faith in Jesus and then live however they please. You know, the Bible says you know, that we get the Holy Spirit. When we become Christians. And yet, these people, they don't seem to show any evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And they know that they should clean up their act, but they kind of think, you know, whatever. I know I'm going to heaven, so it's no big deal. Like, I don't care about up there, whatever rewards. If I get the lease position up there, you know, they can make me a janitor in heaven. I'm fine with that, right? It's all good. No crying, no death, no pain. So I'm just going to live it up. I'm going to party it up down here. I've got my fire insurance, and I'm good with that, right? You may have heard that before. And people come to me and say, Brian, I have a hard time believing God is okay with that. Well, let me address this objection from a few different angles. First of all, can I just say that person might not be a Christian? You see, it is possible for somebody to believe in God's existence or walk an aisle or pray a prayer and not believe the gospel message. I mean, the gospel message, it's very specific that Jesus, God's son, is the one who gives forgiveness and eternal life. And you receive that by faith and faith alone, period. Anything else is not the gospel. And so I know people who believe in the existence of God, but they don't believe in Jesus as their savior. In fact, I know people who believe in Jesus, but they still think it's their own good works that are going to get them into heaven. That is not the gospel. So it's possible to have faith in God, faith in Jesus, and not believe the gospel that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All right, second, it's also possible that a person can have the Holy Spirit living in their life and not allow the Spirit to change them. In fact, let me give you a classic verse about the battle that's going on inside of every one of you if you're a Christian. Every Christian has this battle going on between the flesh and the Spirit. And this is Galatians 5, and I want you to listen carefully to this. Paul says this, you, my brothers and sisters. Okay, who are we talking about here? Christians. Let's make that clear. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Pause here. Wait, wait, wait. Jesus said it's free, but it says that we can use that freedom to do what? Indulge the flesh. that's a distinct possibility. All right, let's read on. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Wow. Like we can bite and devour and destroy each other as Christians. Not exactly a pretty description of believers, is it? So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The only way to stop living in your flesh, your old carnal selfish ways, is to do what? Is to walk by the Spirit. Well, that's a choice every Christian has, 24-7, 365. But it's certainly possible to not let the Spirit work in your life. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. See, it's a battle, a conflict. And what does it say? What's the typical result according to Paul? You don't do what you want to do. And then he concludes with this, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So do you see how having the Holy Spirit in your life is no guarantee that you're going to be led by the Spirit. No guarantee that you're going to show the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And so that's just a reality. And, and I would say the typical Christian life is kind of a mixture of doing some good things by the power of the Spirit and doing plenty of your old habitual sins by the flesh. Like it's a battle. And to say that a person is not a Christian because they're not doing enough good stuff or they don't desire to do good stuff, that's to contradict the clear teaching of Scripture here. There is a battle that's going on inside of every single one of us. And let me add one more crucial point here. Just because you don't see good works in somebody doesn't mean they're not happening. Like God sees the heart. We don't see the heart. And we're going to talk about that next week. (laughs) Like it's not our place to jump in and do that kind of judging, all right? That's next week's message. But all this, it leads me to a more sobering point. Like, if this whole law of sowing and reaping is true, which it is, we will reap what we sow, could it be that sometimes God doesn't wait until heaven to even up the score? Like, I think every once in a while, if, if a Christian is just living in blatant sin, like, I don't care, God will say, all right, enough is enough. If a Christian is saying, hey, I can just blow off God, live however I want, and they're being a terrible witness to other people, sometimes God will say, eh, that's enough of that. You're coming home. Yeah, God will take you out. So I want you to hang on your seats here, okay? Because I'm going to actually walk you through three individual case studies in the New Testament where that happens. Now, these all involve Christians, and they all involve believers who are really and truly pushing the envelope. They're extreme cases, okay? Let's walk through these. Case study number one. It's a couple you may have heard of, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. So here's the background. This is early on in the book of Acts. Church is just getting started. And the Holy Spirit's kind of setting some standards of conduct and behavior. This is how the church should operate. And there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who decide it's okay to tell a bald-faced lie before God and the entire congregation, right? Not Good. And just to give you some more background info here, the people in the early church, man, they were fired up about loving others. They were fired up about sharing what they had with others, just being generous. And in order to take care of the needs of the people in the church and in their community, they actually started to sell their property and their possessions and give the proceeds to the church to help those in need. I mean, that is an awesome thing that's going on here. And there's this positive momentum. Everybody's just giving and everybody's sharing and it's all good. And we're going to pick up the story in Acts 5, 1 to 11. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? He says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, like all these people in the congregation here, but to God. "'When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. "'And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. "'Then some young men came forward, "'wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. "'About three hours later, his wife came in, "'not knowing what had happened. "'And Peter asked her, "'Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land?' "'Yes,' she said, "'that's the price.' "'Peter said to her, "'How could you conspire to to test the spirit of the Lord. Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. It says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now you think, wow. So, What's the moral of this story? Well, don't pretend to be generous when you're not, and then concoct a fake story with your spouse, and then lie to an apostle slash prophet, and then lie to the entire congregation, and, and lie before God, and then lie again when you're given a chance to come clean, right? I doubt that any of you are thinking, that sounds like a great idea. Okay, I know that. But just so you know, there comes a time when God's like, okay, enough is enough here like this is this has gone too far and let me make this perfectly clear we're talking here this all happened amongst believers in the church like these were not unbelievers outside the church god took them home god took them home okay how about case study number 2 getting wasted during a communion service okay yeah getting drunk during a communion service Now, some of you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, who in their right mind would say, that's a good idea. All right, let's cut cut a little slack here. You got to understand, the church is coming out of a very, very pagan culture at that time. They saw all kinds of, of wild things going on. In fact, this happened in the city of Corinth. If you know anything about Corinthians in the first century, okay, things were a little mixed up there. In fact, the worship in the temples to the pagan gods there included what were known as love feasts. And in these love feasts, they they would get drunk and they would have sex with the various priestesses. No kidding. And God's going, okay, we're not doing that in the church. I'm not going to tolerate that in the church. So listen to Paul's words. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Okay, so so the people, they're supposed to be coming together and enjoying this meal, this fellowship with each other. And what are they doing? Some of them are hogging it all to themselves. And they certainly were not supposed to be getting drunk at church. So what happens to these people? Well, Paul, he goes on to explain, okay, here's how you take the bread and the cup in communion. And then at the very end, he says this in verse 27, he says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Paul says, God's bringing judgment here. What does that look like? That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Whoa. Weakness, sickness, falling asleep, that's a term, by the way, for dying. God's not messing around here. He's saying enough is enough. And listen to the end. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. As a Christian, God might discipline you. You might get sick. You might die. But what does it say at the end? You will not be finally condemned with the world, all right? Still save, but God takes you out. Okay. How about one more? All right? Isn't this exciting? Isn't this encouraging? <laughs> Best sermon ever, Brian. Keep them coming. Yeah. Woo! I'm sorry. We preach the whole Bible here, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. Case study number three, committing incest. Yeah, you heard me right. Okay. And the the apostle Paul, he pretty much seen it all, but this one even surprised him. Okay. You can tell by his tone here. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Like, even in the first century, in the city of Corinth, where like everything and anything goes, they frown upon this. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus. On the one who's been doing this. So, when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Okay, again, let me say this this is a believer in the church, all right? Paul makes this clear because he contrasts his behavior with the behavior of a pagan in the pagan world, okay? He's saying, this is the way you're supposed to be. This guy's behaving this way. The pagans behave this way. He's making that contrast there. He's not considering this man to be in that category of being a pagan. And what were they to do? Well, they were supposed to put him out of the fellowship of the church until he agreed, okay, this is is not good. Because did you catch that here? It's not like he's thinking that. What is there? There's pride? Like he's boasting about this? God's like, uh-uh, enough is enough. And you got to ask the question, okay, what's the whole goal of not having fellowship with this guy, of letting him go out in the world, letting Satan go after him? What is the purpose of that? So that he'll come back, so that he will repent. In fact, we get a hint that that could have happened in 2 Corinthians, as Paul was talking about somebody they needed to forgive and welcome back into the church. So there's a good possibility from what we understand that this believer did come back. But did you catch here that even if his flesh is destroyed his spirit will be saved. Now English translations they vary a little bit. This one says may be saved. Other English versions say will be saved, which is more accurate to the Greek. See the Greek grammatical construct here is kind of an if then formula like it assumes if this happens then that will happen. If A then B. If his flesh is destroyed then his spirit will be saved. But there comes a point in time When God says, you know what, you gotta back away from people until they repent. In fact, sometimes God says it can get to the point where you shouldn't even waste your time praying for that person. Okay, can you imagine that? Look at this 1 John 5, 13 to 17. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Who's he writing to here? He's writing to Christians, he's writing to believers. If you see any brother or sister, okay, who are we talking about here? We're talking about Christians. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, so I don't know exactly what that sin is. No commentator really knows for sure. And as I thought about this, maybe the Holy Spirit has to just reveal that to you in that moment. Maybe that's how it worked. And we don't know what that would be. But it's important to note that there comes a time when God says, hey, that brother, he's on his way out of here, no stopping him. Very interesting. Now, if you flip over to the book of James, different context, but there's a little different instruction there. This is James 5, 19 to 20. Look at this. James says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Well, isn't that great? We can actually step in and help a brother or sister in Christ. But I want you to notice here how seriously God does take sin like, we don't like to talk about this a whole lot because it's not fun, it's sobering, but it's real, people. It's very real. You say, well, why do I bring all of this up in this series about grace? Well, it's because sometimes we in free grace circles are accused of being too soft on sin or that our God is too soft on sin. Not at all. Not at all. Does God want to make it easy for all people to come into a relationship with Him? Does God want all people to come to know Him and be a part of His forever family? Absolutely. He is a loving Father. We just read about that. He is not willing that any should perish. And He went the extra mile for us. He did the work for us. He sent His Son, Jesus, to die for us on that cross, to pay the price in full for our sins. And He offers salvation from hell simply by believing Jesus' promise. Does that mean that that makes God a pushover? No. Not at all. Does that mean that grace is a license to sin? (laughs) Not at all. You know, I shared this last week. I loved my boys unconditionally when they were growing up, and nothing that they could do would ever cause them to be out of the family. They were always a part of the family. But that didn't mean there weren't going to be consequences, discipline for their behavior. Like, I loved them. I was gracious to them, but I was also just. Like, if there were never any consequences for their behavior then they would have been ill-prepared for this world. So there were groundings and spankings, like the whole bit. That's kind of that justice and grace combined. Let me close with this. God often withholds judgment in this life to give unbelievers a chance to put their faith in Him. And God often withholds judgment in this life to give us as believers a chance to change our minds, a chance, as the Bible says, to repent. But if we as Christians just continue in blatant sin, just keep crashing ahead, keep doing that, there will be a loss of rewards and status in heaven. There will be discipline here on earth. I don't know what that will look like. Hopefully it doesn't get to the point where it's like, okay, hand that man over to Satan or, or that God calls you home. But let me just say this, from the standpoint of God's justice, don't put the Lord your God to the test, all right? And please, please, please hear me on this. These are extreme, extreme cases. Remember, God is a God of overwhelming love and grace. And He knows that we are, what we say, imperfect people, right? We mess up all the time, and He is so gracious. Really, these are cases where people are deliberately thumbing their nose at God. But I share these as a reminder that God is just, and we believe that as free grace people. We just don't believe that God holds hell over people's heads in order to inspire them to good works. People, that is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. In fact, that is not good news at all. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank You that in Your Word, we see Your whole character. And You are so loving and so kind, so patient, so gracious that we can't even compare to your patience and your love. We would give up on people so quickly, judge people so quickly, condemn people so quickly, um, punish people so quickly, because we don't even begin to understand how loving and gracious and slow to anger that you are. So we praise you for that, but we also praise you that you never compromise your holiness, your righteousness, your justice that You are perfectly just, that even in the case of salvation we should have paid that price of being separated from You for all eternity, but Jesus paid that price for us and how we thank You for that. God, I thank You that You are patient with unbelievers to give every one of them every opportunity to put their faith in You. And I'm thankful that You're patient with me as a believer, with all my brothers and sisters to give us a chance to repent. But I also pray, God, that we would not put you to the test, that we would not end up in one of these extreme categories, and we would always remember this law of sowing and reaping, and we would use it for the good. And as we just read, the only way we cannot walk in the flesh is to lean on your spirit, is to do life with you every moment to learn, to let your spirit lead us, to to spend time talking to you throughout the day. As Paul says, pray without ceasing to include you in everything that we do, to lean on your power. And then we don't have to give into the flesh. And we will sow good things and reap good things and enjoy the abundant eternal life here and for all eternity. So God, we love you. Thank you for your enormous grace. And thank you for how that works with justice and what a perfect God you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, everybody, have a great week. And next week, we're going to talk about judging, okay? That'll be lots of fun. (laughs) Have a good one.